You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. So I, yeah, I'd kind of been this invisible... Uh, kid in, in school, not popular, um, just not, you know, not, nobody you would, you would notice, especially. And then suddenly I'm in this band, and then once the record starts selling and people are familiar with the band, well, I, w- I was never like, um, you know, tabloid level famous yeah. or anything, but enough so that we could do these tours and, uh, you know, you get a lot of uh, attention all of a sudden. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you're in this town and and you're, you know, around the venue, all the the bars and maybe record stores around the, you know, there's people that are going to your concert and suddenly, you know, they recognize you and they want to, and it's just, it's very strange. It's very strange to, to get used to that. Welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza. I'm here as always with Siobhan Cronin and this fucking weirdo pointing at the screen, <laughs> Benny Goodman. What's going on, guys? Hey, guys. We're, uh, what did the pond? What did the ocean say to the beach? I don't know. Nothing. It waved. Oh, th- that was good. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is a very visual episode already, so make sure you check out the, the YouTube. <laughs> well, I'm um, trying to reiterate that they need to go to YouTube. Yes. Uh, or through 2020-D.com because everything's all in one place because I know that it's your life is... It's hard to keep it, track, it, it you know? It's too many right. things. But you can subscribe to every one of the things that you need. The Spotify's and the Apple's and the, the Google's and whatever. It's all there. It's like yes. people that message you on Facebook and then they DM you on Instagram and then there's a TikTok and all this stuff. And I'm like, why can't yeah. we just talk on the phone? Yeah, it's centralized. So Two zero two zero dash D. Yeah, why don't you right turn there. the little dial and put in my five numbers, and we'll get we'll talk. <laughs> and and two zero two zero dash D, aka twenty twenty, is our podcast. And our on our podcast this week, we have the amazing like our job is way too fun at this point. Uh, Alex Skolnick, uh, who's played in some some little bands uh, in the past. Uh, Testament. Also- <laughs> yeah. The yeah. Alex Skolnick trio, author, composer, knows everything. He's just read his book. Yeah, just uh, an amazing. <laughs> He's amazing exactly episode. who he pretends to be. Yeah. <laughs> Without giving too much away, we go we go down. We kind of hear his background. You know how he got started. You know joining this like iconic you mean at band. Uh, he was sixteen when he joined Testament. Oh yeah, that's right. After so, a few years, unreal. he matured and like yeah. like then he found his voice by like nineteen. You know, he, he, he's just got a great story. He took lessons with Joe Satriani. He's, he's played with everyone. Uh, super interesting guy. Check it out. This is part one with Alex Skolnick. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of 2020. If you haven't subscribed yet, went to like it, please go to 2020-d.com. We have some amazing guests, obviously, this week, all the other weeks. There's so many things to hear in here, so please go check that's it like out a, if you haven't already. That's what? like a drug dealer saying that his pot is bad. Why would we ever say we have bad guests? We just kind of gloss over that, but like, I mean, not well, all of our guests are good. Some of them are better than others. <laughs> you didn't even allow me to introduce anything yet. I'm so. rude. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, before I even get to, get to introduce myself, that is Benny Goodman. Hello. <laughs> I'm Siobhan Cronin, here also with my other co-host, compatriot, what do we call ourselves, of cohorts, Corey Peza. Been called much worse, but yeah, glad to be exactly. here. Why better? <laughs> <laughs> but more important than all three of us, we have an incredible guest this week, and I'm actually in the middle of reading his book right now, which I have oh to God, commend I'm you on. So it's, it's 
And no, it's so it's really entertaining. And like, I, mm-hmm. I read a lot and I'm pretty critical of writers. So I mean, not that I'm a writer <laughs> myself, but it's, it's, it's really, really engaging. If you were a guitar player, I would say the suspension of disbelief as to reading a book would be a little bit much. But considering you play violin, you're a little more highbrow than the rest oh my of gosh. us. But anyway, before we get carried away, the amazing Alex Skolnick of Testament, so many other projects, such yeah, an Alex interesting Skolnick story. Trio. Yeah, the, you have such an interesting story that I don't even know how to introduce you, but I'm, I'm halfway <laughs> through your book and I'm just like, I feel like I've been hanging out with you all week. So anyone that hasn't read this yet, please order it. Geek can to you, Guitar Hero. For those, for oh, those, Geek to Guitar Hero by Alex Skolnick. Alex, where can they go find it? Uh, you can get it on Amazon or there's links on my website is that a dot net or is it a dot com the amazon thing? uh either oh. <laughs> i think i, I got actually it have your a website do- <laughs> yeah the main one is dot com i have dot net for uh my podcast which is called moods and modes i may as well mention that and uh, sure. i have photography on the dot net as well it's always scary when we have someone that has a podcast because they're going to realize that we're just complete frauds. We have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> well, it's also scary when someone actually knows modes and I say I'm playing the fridge and they're like, no, dude, that's not, that's just harmonic minor. <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how are you doing? How is this year going for you? What, what What's life like for you? Oh, I've, I'm on your podcast, so I think so things I've aren't going it, well. I think <laughs> so, not so great. He's been 2020, which is the name of our podcast, by the way, right. which we never said. Right, but now it's 2021. Yeah, it's it's been very very interesting. I think uh, today the third. I think it's been exactly almost exactly a year since mm-hmm. um, I returned from tour, which was my my last touring. Um, period, which you know none of us knew at the time, and um, it's been a very diff- different year. Um, you know, I I think it's a it's a mixed blessing. A lot of very cool things have happened. Uh, I've 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 wanted to get my podcast together for the longest time, and it came together, and it's on the Osiris Network, and I just had a dream guest i don't always have guests i do different <laughs> types of shows some of it's more like this american life it's like radio short stories nice but i just had a dream guest i can't even talk about yet but i'm <laughs> like pinching myself and oh, that's that'll awesome. be like two episodes from now yeah and um so that came together a lot of collaborations came together that wouldn't have happened otherwise um it just seems like every week there's a, a collaboration and I've got a packed <laughs> schedule between uh, the collaborations, the, the podcast. I'm writing uh, another book. This is more of a method book for uh, Hal Leonard, the uh, music oh. publishing company. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I I'm started more of a that Mel Bay both. guy, so I don't know if I'm on board, but whatever. <laughs> Hal Leonard, <laughs> fine. No one's heard and of him anyway. anyway. So I somehow, despite the no travel, I've been like ridiculously busy. Well, it's definitely the year of remote projects and I'm sure guest solos and all sorts of things. Thanks like to technology record. and Tons exactly. Of well, yeah, solos. speaking yeah. of which, yeah. So obviously, you know, behind this podcast, the three of us are actually in a band, Lost Symphony, lostsymphony.com. And Alex graced us with some of his amazing guitar playing. So speaking yeah. of collaborations, thank you, of course, for oh, you know, elevating us. You guys us. are great. The <laughs> music's really cool. Can we tell him a quick story about about Marty Friedman, because you might, you might know this about him. So Marty Friedman, the reason we got all these amazing players together was because our friend Ollie Herbert, who is the guitar player of All That Remains, um, passed away, and we wanted to give him uh, a tribute record oh, sorry, sorry. Um, that, mm-hmm. would, that would really be the best thing. And, you know, we used to joke around. He was a, when we started this project, he was a part of it, and we used to joke around, um, you know, what would be, who would be the best players we could possibly get for this symphonic uh, instrumental rock project. And we'd always joke like, oh, Marty Friedman or Nuno Betancourt. And um, when he passed, that's, I went to every single one of the, the players that he loved the most. And um, right. we got Marty, we got Nuno, who are the two people we use as a joke. But when I spoke to Angel Vivaldi, he used to, the first thing he told me about Ollie was that they used to stay up all night listening to Testament and that they would just argue about which solo of yours was their favorite. And I, did, oh, I had no funny. connections to you. And then all of a sudden, our marketing guy right. says, oh, yeah, 
I, I'm friends with Skolnick. I duped him into playing. I 2020 him into playing my wedding. And I'm like, that's exactly right. Which we have yep. to talk about. But the thing that I'm about to tell you is that you play on a song called Take Another Piece and you play over Nuno and you play over Marty, but most importantly over Marty. And Marty said to me when he sent the tracks, don't have anyone play a single note over what I did. But then I said <laughs> to Nuno Betancourt, who's one of my personal favorites, Boston guy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, Portugal, I mean, one of the greatest guitar players. And well, I said, you know, don't play over Marty. And he goes, who's Marty? And I'm like, really? <laughs> oh, and, and he goes, whatever. And then he sends it back to me and there's playing all over Marty. And he said to me, he goes, you tell that Marty guy that if you're going to send a Boston boy, a track that sounds like it's supposed to have a Boston harmony, I'm going to bring it home. So I already <laughs> knew that it had been ruined that Marty might hate me. So I figured uh, if we're going to okay. have all three people playing, one thing Marty said to me, don't let anyone push you around and tell you what to do artistically. Not even me. And I knew in my head, if Ollie saw Nuno Betancourt, Marty Friedman, and Alex Skolnick playing together, despite Marty's hatred of collaborating with anyone else, he'd be very mm -hmm. happy. So I want to say thank you wow. for playing on that. I think he might be happy because what you delivered on that, I can't wait for everyone to hear. But I know yeah. Ollie up That's in heaven to hear. is literally saying, I would never have guessed. I would never have <laughs> ever so thought funny. this would happen. Because, uh, yeah, the guy, when I heard it, too, I wasn't totally clear on who was playing. Good. And I guess, you know, some names were mentioned, but I, I didn't know who was playing. I just remember hearing those guys. I'm like, oh, my God, these these guys can play. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Yeah, they're all right. Marty, I, do know, I've, I, I don't know Nuno well. Yeah, much, you know, obviously by reputation and much respect, but... I what an you know, honor to be on with him. Marty, I have toured with in the past. We have a lot of history together. And over the years, people have asked us to collaborate. And we've talked about it. We've actually like shared fan questions about collaborating. Last time I was in Japan um, in 2019, I met up with him in Japan, which was really cool. Mr. Guitar. Uh, had, yeah, we, we had sushi and just talked. And... It's one. It's one of those things. I mean, we talk about collaborating. Actually, having it happen is very difficult. But we're finally collaborating thanks to this project and Ollie. That, that's yeah. very yeah. cool to know. And Ollie, yes, thank yeah. you, Ollie. Yeah, yeah. We, we we cannot wait to uh, to get this stuff out to the world. I think the stuff that you did and and, and the project itself in its entirety is gonna it's gonna blow people's minds. So we're really excited about it. It it was uh, it, yeah. It made me to you know tap into some stuff. No pun not intended. That, uh, the, there was a very, um, yeah, just a very specific sound. I mean, I, I don't always. I, I can certainly play fast. It's part of what I do, but I'm not somebody that. It's not like the main thing I do, mm -hmm. and I, I want to be somebody who you know is is able to play with the super fast people, but it's. Not my main. Th I'm not really playing for specifically for fans of super fast playing. You right. know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, like if I was if if I was on st stage with that Project Generation Axe or whatever that tour with yeah. like Ingve and and Nuno and and all those guys, I, I'm sure I could find something to play. But it's not really my main thing. But I you know th this made me really tap into the fast. Stuff and maybe go a little faster than I used to and go be a little more shreddy than you, but it was good. It was a good, uh, good yeah. challenge. Cause I want my stuff to fit with those guys and those guys sound yeah. amazing. Alex, yeah. one of the things that I, I love about you is that, is that you're, you're so tasty. You just, you pick the right notes and that's much more important. Thank and, you. and, and I, I, I want to talk about this because I use this term, this uh, metaphor to Pantera a lot. Um, Pantera introduced double bass and they had this power groove and that was really heavy and it just made you move. But now you have all these right. super technical metal bands that sound quantized to a grid and they're playing these blast yeah. beats and these super fast shred sweep arpeggios. And for me, that's soulless. I could care less. One of the things I loved about Nuno is he sounds ferocious when he's playing. He sounds like he's yeah. moving his hair with his feathers and shit when he's playing. And there's like bombast to it. And even Ingve Malmsteen. 
Like when he came out, even though he's super fast he's, and he's like a super shredder by any means, he still had that bombast and that bravado that from the second you heard his vibrato, it's him. Now I feel like there's yeah. all these players that they grew up in a year in a world where there was auto tune and quant and quantization, and they play like that. So yes, they can play right. super fast, but to sound like like the second you come in on our song, it sounds like Alex Skolnick, and that is so right. much more important to me. You know, like even Jimmy Page, for example, like Nuno was telling me when we first met, he's like, I don't like perfect. And I think he thought I liked the super shredding. And he's like, I like Jimmy Page. He messed up. He played like a real player. But I yeah. love that. And I think that that's devoid in a lot of music. And I'm sort of curious as a guy that is expected to be a guitar hero. How do you feel about these guys that are coming out that look like all they've done is sit in front of a computer learning Eddie's tricks since they were six? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I can respect it it's it's very different from where i'm i'm coming from i don't i don't need that you know there are, there is music where you know the technicality is a part of it and it gets me real you know i i love it and certainly i and certainly i do there's people who hear me and they think i'm like the super technical player but i think when you listen to like the guys like you're talking about that's that's a whole whole other thing. There's this whole other scientific level of shredding and like two handed stuff that I just I I don't I don't really I'm not that interested in it. Like I I'm sure I could devote a bunch of time if I said okay I'm gonna take a year and I'm gonna learn these new um, tricks and these new techniques. That's fine. I just don't have it in me. It's there, there's music I like that is really not that technical, but it's emotional. Mm -hmm. um, when it is technical and emotional, that that's great too. But to me, like it's just funny. Like to me, Van Van Halen, who you know, who's like inspired me to play lead guitar in the first place, the early Van Halen stuff. That's like, you know, that's that's sort of old school now compared to some some stuff that that's happening, and I would. You know, I would still rather lis listen to somebody like like him because there's just so much soul, and I like soul. Um, to me, Van Halen and maybe a few others who came after um, are about as fast as it gets with still having soul. Mm -hmm. That interests me, and I'm not knocking like the super perfect technical stuff. I it's just. It's not really for me. There are there is some guitar out there that sounds like video game music to me. Well, yeah. if look, um, you can hum. If you can't hum it, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, like it's funny because I have a lot of these people that come in and they play. Um, you know, a lot of these new bands that do that two hand tapping like crazy stuff. Look, when I saw Stanley Jordan for the first time play Over the Rainbow, it blew my fucking mind because he was playing two guitars or he's doing this double tapping thing. Yeah. But now there's some like nine year old in Dubai playing some crazy, like ridiculous, like 17 string something or another. And it's like, it. at what point do you say, like, are you saying anything with this? Because one of my favorite things right. that really put things relative to me, and I've said this to a few different guitar players, and I'm sure you were in the back of Guitar World magazine saying this, but they used to ask different guitar players one question. And I think one question they had asked was, what was your favorite guitar solo ever? And you know, all these guys are like, I love, you know, Mr. Crowley. I love Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I love Aerosmith. I love that. And um, Trey Anastasio from Fish says, I won't <laughs> tell you my favorite solo. I'll tell you my favorite note. And he's, he said the power of love, Jimi Hendrix, live at the Fillmore 1970. He said like 12 minutes into it, he holds out one note for about 45 seconds. And he said that he said more in that one note than Ingve did on the entire Rising Force record. And yeah. That was like a, yeah, things sense. turned for me from going, oh, you need to be the strongest Arnold Schwarzenegger on the guitar or you just need to say something right. meaningful and drop the mic. Yeah. Maybe you have a lesson yeah. to learn from that, Ben. <laughs> Dropping the mic? <laughs> saying, saying something, something meaningful. meaningful in a short amount um, of time. <laughs> I also think, I think a lot of that is indicative of how, uh, you know, guitarists can be, can rise above the noise these days, which is mostly on social media and Instagram and TikTok and that stuff. Right. So they have to do something that's impressive to people without them having to put much, you know, investing much time into it. 
So if I have 30 seconds to to gain someone's attention, I can't do a nice soulful blues lick because there's no one's going to sit there for that. So, but if I can do a crazy two anding tapping lick that that is actually physically impressive, technically impressive, I'm probably going to get more people going. Oh, that's interesting! Like, click, I like that. Right. So I think it's just the way people well, it's also digest what your music. motivation is. Yeah, yeah. Are you trying to say something musically, or are you, is it like a you know a strongman performance? You know, yeah. like a carnival. Exactly. Like yeah. who can mm-hmm. lift the biggest weight and who can, you know, who can put on the the biggest show. Um, and maybe you know there there's something to that. It just yeah, it it doesn't interest me. It stopped interesting me a a long time ago. And the stuff, the fast stuff that I I was into, Eddie, Randy Rhodes, um. I, and I did like, you know, the first couple albums that Ingve did, I, I was a fan and I was learning his stuff. I'm not even shitting on Ingve. Um, I love Ingve, by the way. I think he was great. Yeah, I mean, Ingve serves a purpose, too. And there was also no, when he came out, nobody sounded yeah. like that. Yeah, that's the key. So, <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, I, I give prop, props to, to Ingve, but it's, there's, he sort of started a whole, there's a, a whole following. That started uh, after Ingve, and you know some players did really interesting things with it. Like one, there's guitar players who were very—I uh, can't imagine them doing their thing with without Ingve, which would be uh, Paul Gilbert, mm-hmm. for example, or um, Buckethead. Yeah. And these are super fast playing, but uh, those guys have these person they put brought this quirky personality into it and i think it made it more interesting paul's a little bit more uh, endearing than ingve i feel well paul's you know he's a very he's got very diverse musical taste and he's he's a todd rundgren fan he speaks about todd rundgren all the time so um that's a, that's a different thing but i do think for every person like that there's just so many other players that we're just doing that. That sounded so similar. The whole knee posting vey neoclassical thing, and now you've got a similar thing happening um, with you know more modern burning players. Look, like we the, actually go- took Vivaldi and played Vivaldi. So just so you know, on our record, Lost Symphony, we just uh-huh. played Paganini and we played Schubert right. because we said, you know what? <laughs> Instead of just stealing it and, and paraphrasing it, we're just going to play it. So, uh, but that's what it sounded like for me after a while with a lot of that neoclassical movement was it went from having like that real fury that, you know, obviously fury with, with Ingve to kind of just sounding right. like, okay, you've listened to, to, to Paganini's 24 Caprices. Clearly, and Richie Blackmore, good for you. Yeah, I, I think with any movement, there tends to be, yeah, there's the original, and then it starts to get watered down. L, you know, and after Van Halen, I mean, in L.A., like every sort of commercial hard rock band uh, had a soloist. Now suddenly, guitar solos were, and yeah, a few were def- definitely great soloists and should have been featured warren demartini of rat those solos mm-hmm. still sound great george lynch for example uh there's others i won't name them but it's like they were sort of trying to do the same thing but it wasn't quite working but it became this cliche like you had to have that you had to have the big solo and i just i think that's happened in you know various shred movements whether it was people that followed Ingve or People who try to play like you know, Guthrie Govan, who I think is you know, an incredible player, doing some very different stuff. I don't even touch the stuff that <laughs> some of that stuff he does. But then, there, yeah, there's there are the imitators that follow along, sure. and um, yeah, I, I think uh, it's just better not to try to be an imitator. I, you know, I I take what I can from different players. Uh, Eddie was certainly a big influence but it, you know I, I i try not to make it too obvious and i try to base it on what i like and there's there's a lot of music i like that isn't as i said this earlier it's not technical at all but that that might come out while i'm playing 
technical music because I, you know, I want a melody that's memorable, I want something that fits the song. That's another thing that was so great about Eddie and you know the the early you know technical players is that it no matter what it fit the song and some uh, some players seem to forget about that right. Yeah, I'd like to take it back a bit before we get carried away. Um, do, you know, just for anyone that maybe hasn't read your book or doesn't know a lot about you, you have a really interesting story, and I'm I'm interested to hear how you did find this voice and this space that you fit into in terms of your guitar playing. Um, can you maybe tell the listeners a little bit about your upbringing, uh, growing up in Berkeley? It's, I mean, I've I've laughed like so many times at some of the ways that you described where you grew up. You know, especially having been on tour there before, and wh- how you see it as an outsider. And it was so funny to hear what it was like to actually grow up there in your experience with your parents and learning music. So uh, maybe if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about some of that, um, you know, growing up and how you got into guitar. Yeah, well, I um, I found myself in this metal scene in the Bay Area when I was very young. So I joined the band Testament when I was uh, in 11th grade. <laughs> and I wanted to play in a band that was already playing. And at that time, uh, it wasn't as common for um, people to be playing guitar as a you know 15 year old and have several years under their belt like a lot of teens were starting guitar now people start much younger but i need you know i needed to be in a an existing band and um yeah it's just funny because the metal scene there's a lot of folks who kind of came from different backgrounds where they they were sort of expected to get a real job you know, and a real job might be, I don't know, a machinist or uh, working at a, you know, having a, a union job, some kind of labor. Um, I grew up surrounded by Sigmund Freud books and Foucault and boring PBS programming. This sounds and, like my childhood. Um, <laughs> you don't like Bob Ross. I'm very much related to this. <laughs> Bob Ross is the yeah. best. Was the best. Is the best. Still the best. Was that just? Yeah, no, I love Bob. But um, yeah. So well, my so my fa- my family they're academics, and the reason I grew up in Berkeley is because of UC Berkeley, and um, I my father was a law professor. My mother wrote psychology textbooks. You know, they both have you know like advanced doctoral degrees from, from Yale. And I, you know, I was not on that track. They kind of saw, I, um, I didn't, I didn't like, like, I didn't like school. I didn't like, um, school sports. I didn't like the whole culture. I'm, I was very introverted, less so now, but extremely introverted then. Mm-hmm. And, um, the only thing that I, I was good at that I could find was good at was guitar and rock music. And it was sort of never a question that I was going to carve out some kind of existence around guitars <laughs> and music. It just, um, but you had to kind of yeah, resist it, some, some, pre- not, I don't want to say pressure, but I mean, from what I've read it, you know, it seems like you, you didn't necessarily have the ideal situation of, you know, having that support, like, you know, go do music. And this in- is interesting to me because, you know, for me, I-, I grew up in kind of a, a similar environment with very academic parents that kind of had their own ideas. And now my mom's very supportive of me being in music, but it was similar. It's like, if you're not going to go to some, you know, doctorate or professional law doctor type thing, like arts is just kind of a side thing, you know? So it's, it's interesting exactly. to me that you made, that you made something of it because I think a lot of people get discouraged and quit and they lose that, that vision growing up in yes. that environment. That's exactly right. Um, it was also a time period where, um, yeah, I guess parents of a certain generation, they kind of expected their offspring to follow in their footsteps and, um, yeah, it was it was not a, a musical family. Uh, the, they were from New York. Ironically, I ended up moving to New York mm-hmm. later in life and sort of rediscovered my New Yorkness. But they'd come from New York, so we were separate from other uh, relatives. And 
It's not like I had like an uncle or anything who played. Like nobody played. Mm-hmm. I was like completely on my own. Uh, except I, my brother, I had an older brother who who played. Um, kind of, and he played some clubs. He kind of never never got beyond playing clubs. But, uh, you know, just yeah, music. It, it was just seen as this horrible thing. And I think since then, there's just been a lot more. Like parenting has changed, right? You're supposed mm-hmm. to, you know, may, almost to a fault. Like everything is encouraged. You yeah. Know? Yep. <laughs> yeah. You, you're great at everything. <laughs> Tell you, you know. And that's, yeah. the, I don't know. That that doesn't make sense. That's like opposite um, extreme. Yeah. The opposite extreme. Exactly. But um, yeah. So it was overcoming that was really tough. But I have, I think it helped that. I was in a place that it had, you know, it had this interesting history because Berkeley was this, it was like stuck in the sixties. So we had on, on, on the streets, people still wore tie dye, you know, like they were at a grateful dead concert in the late sixties, except this is the 1980s and incense everywhere. And, um, it was yeah, it was really like stuck in that time. He hate Ashbury wasn't that far away, but then um, somehow this heavy rock and metal scene developed, and I was just I was there just as that was happening. So like the band um, the band Exodus was formed by Kirk Hammett, and they quickly just started playing clubs and they were doing really well. And, you know, they tell the story really well, but like Metallica had formed in Southern California where they hated it. They were just these outcasts and they played in the Bay area and they met Exodus and it was like a shock. Like, wow, we're all into the same kind of heavy music. And then obviously, you know, we all know the story. Kirk Hammett joins Metallica they become this massive band, but um, in their wake, this whole other scene developed. So you had the post Kirk Hammett version of Exodus, and they're still playing. Uh, Anthrax is coming out from New York and playing the Bay Area. Um, Megadeth, because <laughs> the reason Kirk Hammett is in Metallica is because they kicked out. A guy named Dave Mustaine, yeah. who, right? Yeah, who of course. forms a band called Megadeth that right. did, did does their well. very first show in Berkeley, my hometown. You know? Yeah, and yeah, I'm, I read his memoir. And I remember that. That's cool. Yeah. And I'm one of the few people that's actually from Berkeley. Like most, uh, were you at the show? Like, Dave they, Mustaine wants to know. <laughs> what's that? Were you at the show at Berkeley? Dave Mustaine wants to personally know. Were you there, Alex? Oh no, no! Did you witness it? <laughs> I w- I was not. I was not. But um, they played there they kept playing there they played there a, a number of times and one of those times the, one of the support acts was the band that would become testament mm-hmm. so I, I so i missed i mean there were so many shows you couldn't possibly go to all these shows and i'm still in the, i guess at this point i'm in the 10th grade so i'm in the 10th <laughs> grade and my f- whole circle of friends they're getting into going to local shows i never knew there were local shows like yeah. i, I so I got my brother to take me to Kiss when I was 10. Um, my buddy's older brother took us to Van Halen. What lineup of but Kiss was it? The lineup. It, so it was the original lineup the, before. The last the one. I was 10 years old. Yeah. The very last. Part. I had no idea. And I heard they, they had a fist fight before. <laughs> like, I'm finding all this out later. But Sounds about to right. me, that, that was the greatest concert, you know. To this day, I still they can't told remember. you at the I, beginning. I, don't you know that? Like they came out and said they're the greatest band in the land. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I and they only that. play the best, Alex. <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, Gibson guitars and Pearl drums. Well, that's why Dave Mustaine plays Gibson now. Is because he, he, he even it all comes. He literally around. said that. Yes, it all yeah. comes around. Right, so it's all it's all full circle. So I had been to those concerts. So I'd I'd seen Kiss at. The Cow Palace, that's the arena in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I had seen uh, Van Halen. Uh, I think it was at the Oakland Coliseum, there, that arena. I didn't know you could, there's clubs, like bands play small. Oh, so, you know, a few years later, so my brother's playing clubs. Um, I'm going with friends and I'm 
checking out the, these these same clubs where like the first Megadeth show was, and I so I didn't catch the first Megadeth show. I did catch the first Slayer show in the Bay Area, <laughs> and they did another show where um, Exodus supported them, and apparently had a, a come to Jesus talk with them and said they they. Cause they were wearing Slayer was wearing makeup at the time <laughs> and like they were totally, they had, they still had the Southern California theatrical thing. So basically Kirk Hammett walked in and said, hell awaits for you, Carrie King. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, he was, he was gone by that point, but, oh. uh, the rest, the rest of the guys. Yes. So the first, so I caught the very first Slayer show. Um, I caught, I think it was the first time Anthrax came through on tour. Uh, the Earl, like Anthrax 1.0, like, Pre Joey Belladonna, and and then um, somehow I kept missing Testament, which was called Legacy at the time. But friends of mine would say, "Dude, you gotta hear this band. This band's great." They're band, you know. And then yeah, I'm in the tenth grade, and then by the time I'm in the eleventh grade, this is um, right, yeah, around the time their original guitar player leaves the band for some reason, and then I get the word, "Oh, they're." This band is looking for a guitar player. And at that point, um, another great thing about being in the Bay Area, for, for all my complaints about it, the guitar teacher that a bunch of us studied with, the, um, the guys in, in Exodus, the guys in um, a band called Possessed, which was a that early like death metal band where the the guitarist was Larry Lalonde. He would later join a band called Primus. Um, the guy that we all studied with was named Joe Satriani, <laughs> and he was teaching in a little guitar shop, and we, we were all kind of scratching our heads, going, why is this guy not more well-known? This is insane. And it was actually, we would, this was, we would hear from our, our parents about how the music business, you know, is terrible and you should not even attempt to enter the music business because this guy if if people have not heard of this guy <laughs> what hope is there right. for anybody else um but you know obviously within a few years everybody would hear about joe sadriani so mm -hmm. yeah so it was kind of this in incredible time so for all my frustrations and pressures to Go into academia, which I just I did not appreciate at the time. I actually appreciate it more now. I've, you know, I pay more attention. I, I read more than I used to back then. But I back then, it just music. I felt so passionately about music, and I could not mm -hmm. imagine not doing that. But um, the fact that I was there, where where all these bands were um, originating, and the scene was originating, and Musicians like Joe Satriani that was you know were well kept secrets. Um, was amazing, and I you know and I was I was very lucky. And then that's that's kind of how it all began. What do you think it was about the Bay Area that really fostered that scene? Because I you know it's interesting how LA was obviously so different, and certain things didn't work there that worked in the Bay yeah. Area. Like what? What, was there something about the vibe or the culture? Because obviously so many of these bands that we now know as legendary originated in yeah. this era, in this geographic location. So what, what do you yeah. think, what, what was the common thread there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I, I, exact, it's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but I think there are two um, forms of rebellion that had a lot to do with it. One of them was the... Um, the fallout from the sixties, the fact that sixties culture was everywhere. And yeah, with total respect to, you know, Joan Baez and, um, grateful dead and, you know, sort of more, um, uplifting music, you know, this, mm -hmm. the summer of love, yeah. flower power. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're growing up and we're just so, sick of it at that point and then we discover motorhead and iron maiden and judas priest and black sabbath and it's just like you know 
angry <laughs> and like ugly ugly in a way in a beautiful way you know just brutally honest like the complete opposite of that music so uh -huh. i think that was a part of it and then i think when it came to the club scene and the kind of emerging uh bands there was um a rebellion against southern california because southern california was certainly more um you know that that was we were sort of always in the shadow of southern california you know nationally when people think of california southern california comes to mind first it's got hollywood right, right. la um you know it's the main metropolitan region on the west coast so the bands that are coming from there are just completely different than in in the bay area like there's just a open hostility in the bay area to bands like rat and Dokken. Mm. even though those those are bands i like the guitar players but um yeah. i don't know poison poison came out and mm -hmm. Well, the yeah. Im the image with those we bands was... hated them. Yeah, like if yeah if if we saw somebody with a shirt, a poison <laughs> shirt, it was it, it was like a sports like the ugliest sports rivalry. Yeah, it was like you know seeing it was like you know the the Red Sox versus the Yankees. But do you feel like the converse is true? Because I remember when I was in high school and I'd like walk around with an Iron Maiden shirt, and like I went to an all guys Catholic high school, so when it like I I wore. Um, you know, a, a suit to school basically, or, or a jacket and shit. So when, like, when you had, like, I'd show my Iron Maiden shirt, and I'd walk around the neighborhood, and you'd see someone else with a Megadeth shirt or an Anthrax or a Testament shirt. You guys always kind of gave each other the eyes, like, I know that dude's cool. Like, he could, we could be friends. And like, I feel like a lot of things with metal now is like, I mean, there always was a rivalry, but one of the things I feel like with metal is that there's a camaraderie in the fact that when it's not mainstream, people who see other metalheads, it's like. Oh, you're one of us. Like, for, mm -hmm. just like you see someone the Red Sox versus someone who's wearing Yankees. It's very, um, you know, ethnocentric. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 changed too. It's changed over the years. I think. Uh, well, also the early part of the '80s. You know, the whole um, the glam metal LA influence was so big and even bands that weren't from la you know if you look at like bon jovi during that period then that's not even an la band they're from new right. jersey but originally when they came out yeah they completely had they looked like they were from la cinderella all these all these other bands um and even you know the great kiss you know who had just done some of the my favorite music and they're they're in LA and they're destroyed from being in LA. They, like look at pictures of Kiss at that time, oh. like just Paul Stanley's leopard pants and uh, you know <laughs> Gene with his weird like <laughs> they're all wearing these weird colors and so the Bay Area was just it was a hotbed of um, defiance against that yeah. against that kind of commercialism and imagery. And we we were sort of very proud to just you know have our yeah you know, be like more like like the people's yeah. music. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Jeans and t the bands wore jeans and t shirts, right? And it just felt much more honest and and direct. Can you talk a little bit about you know once you did join up with Testament and and how that you know going from watching these shows to being a part of that scene you know worked for you. Well, I was just uh, talking about this, about um, how nervous I was when, when I when I did my first show. Um, the first show was with a band that's still around, actually, uh, Death Angel. They were they were very young at the time, and my band was a bit older. I would, but I was very young. I was like in the Death Angel range. So I was I was the kid. I could not. Um, I could be, I could barely hold the pick. I, I was so nervous. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, I recently, I described it as like a thrill ride. Mm -hmm. 
Like you get on a roller coaster, you're terrified, but afterwards you're pumped with adrenaline and you're ready to go on again. That's <laughs> that was what it's like. And then uh, our next show was in San Francisco at a venue called The Stone, a very legendary place. And with each concert, I just got a little bit less nervous and a little less nervous and a little more comfortable. And then by the time we were, uh, I guess by the time we, we'd signed our record deal, I was, I was like just out of high school. And basically a, a lot of my friends were starting college and right this, the, the fall after graduation. And, um, I, I had plane tickets and hotels booked to record our first record. And then the following summer, we went on tour, and we were on um, Megaforce Records, which was distributed by Atlantic Records. So we sort of indirectly have a major label deal, and the bands we're touring with are all, at the at first, are bands that are connected to Megaforce Records. So um, Anthrax, whose management was the heads of uh, Megaforce Records, Marsha Zazula, may she rest in peace. And most notably, Johnny Z, the founder, John Zazula. And um, Overkill, another man, uh, New York heavy band that's still around. We toured with them. So even though, you know, when I was, I guess I was 16 when I did my first show, I was 18 when I did the first album, and then followed that with a tour. With Once you go on tour, then... That's a whole other level because then yeah. you have just night after night to fine tune and learn how to do this, learn how to, uh, you know, get in a zone, how to handle mistakes or if you don't problems with the monitor, you know, things that happen, you just learn to roll with the punches. And I just think, um, if you get through a tour, and you're able to handle it and the lack of sleep and got your band getting on each other's nerves and all the things that go wrong and things. If you get through that, like it, it just, you're on this whole other level. Suddenly it's not like you're this club band of newbies anymore. And then with each tour, you just, you, you you reach, you reach a different plateau. So being, that young when all this you know you're basically talking like a two three year period going from like oh you can go see bands and clubs to like oh we're touring you know and i'm signing a record label it, it's it's crazy yeah, it's and, I, and I think you mentioned your friends are going off to college you know and doing these things that there's a kind of a clear roadmap for that lifestyle so for you um you know how do you think you handled that you know personally you know going into this very uh uh almost elite career path that's doesn't have a lot of uh information that you can kind of get until you're there and, and in it it's it's a big learning experience in many ways so you, yeah you learn you just learn a lot you learn a lot about the uh yeah you know, about the world really fast mm -hmm. and you learn that <laughs> the things they're teaching you in school all the facts and figures they're, they're, they're not all that useful <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you just yeah you learn a lot you learn about you know people's motivations and um yes you should be nice to everybody you should everybody deserves a chance but not everybody deserves your trust mm -hmm. your trust must be earned yeah it was a, it was um a, a real uh awakening in a way yeah. Did you guys have any guidance from, from, you know, maybe more veteran, uh, bands and artists? Not really. No, no. We kind of had to figure it out as, as we went along. And it's just, it's just weird too, because you're, you know, I'm just out of school, which has its own hierarchies, right? It's kind of false social hierarchies and mm -hmm. people who are, um, very popular and considered successful in school. I, I mean, you hear about this all the time. They're just become completely lost and directionless. 
after school. And then there's others that are just invisible that people are, that are underestimated and nobody knows they exist. And they end up like doing something with their lives and having some huge impact on the world. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I'd kind of been this invisible, uh, kid in, in school that just, you know, not popular, um, just not, you know, not, nobody you would, you would notice, especially. And then suddenly I'm in this band and then once the record starts selling and people are familiar with the band, well, I, w- I was never like, um, you know, tabloid level famous yeah. or anything, but enough so that we could do these tours and, uh, you know, you get a lot of uh, attention all of a sudden. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you're in this town and, and you're, you know, around the venue, all the, the bars and maybe record stores around the, you know, there's people that are going to your concert and suddenly, you know, they recognize you <laughs> and they want it. And it's just, it's very strange. It's very strange to, to get used to that. Yeah. Um, and then how, how to, um, but just put that in, in perspective and, and talk to people and like, you know, if you're like, you know, you get into playing music partially because, so you don't have to talk to people because you're not <laughs> good at talking to people, but suddenly everybody wants, you're, you, yeah, you're in these crowds where everybody wants to say, so you kind of have to, uh, learn how to navigate that. And, mm-hmm. um, I was talking to somebody recently, um, that got much, much more famous than me, like tabloid level famous and talking about like that. And, and it it, it was very, it was in a way it was very relatable. Like it was, I never experienced it on this level that this person was, was talking about, but it was enough so that, yeah, it's, it's kind of the, the same thing. And some deal with it very well. I mean, you see, you see like a couple of great examples, I think, like if you look at say Ringo Starr now <laughs> or Paul McCartney, right? These are just, <laughs> they seem like just so at ease and at peace. And I've, I've, you know, I've never met them, but I know <laughs> several folks who have and people who've worked with them and apparently, you know, they're, they're delightful and they yeah. know everybody wants to talk to them and they, they give everybody attention, but they can also be people. They can, and then there, there's, you see others that, you know, maybe I, I won't, I won't mention any names, but that are just tortured by it. Britney sure. Spears. Yeah, just tor- the tor- you know, you've, huh? Like Britney well, yeah, Spears. Sure. At, at her, the poor girl. I mean, I'm, her, I'm not even joking. Like the poor girl had yeah, went no, nuts, shaved her head and then her really, dad took all of her money from her. And now she's like, like free Britney. Hashtag free Britney. It's really disconcerting what, hap- what happened to her. Yeah. Very disconcerting. Whatever you think of her music. It's like a Stanley um, Kubrick film, dude. It's like she gets so famous, she has the most hits, and now she's like a, a tra- trapped in her own world and cesspool of money and, and her family trying to take advantage of her. Right. And you're at, right. Meltdowns, public meltdown. I mean, that just seems awful to me. Um, Horrifying. Amy Winehouse, that's mm-hmm. another yeah. good example. And there's a great documentary on her. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I never, like never had to experience like that level of celebrity, but even if you're just, uh, you know, a band that tours and you're in magazines targeted to a specific demographic, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have to learn how to navigate and deal with fans, having fans. It's a, it's a strange thing. I mean, I, you know, I don't even think about it anymore because I've, had it for so long and i'm i you know but at first it it can be yeah. really strange they really should give like a a course <laughs> i was just gonna to say it's a skill set that not many people uh have or or need to have but it's something that you know right. it, it it stood out to me because you were so young that you were forced to develop at least some semblance of of you know a way of coping with that and handling that and not going crazy because I think of myself at at that age and I I was an idiot I, there's no way yeah. I would have, with no way I would have handled anything like that um, yeah, a lot of us are yeah, yeah yeah it's rare it's rare to have I mean uh, you know Justin Bieber that's another example yeah. and it's not 
Yeah. Um, not that his music's relatable <laughs> at any way, in any way to what we do, but just, yeah, to, that, that was painful to watch. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on with him now, but it, I think he came out of it. Okay. Like I, he's not in the tabloids. Dude, Dennis Leary called this in 1990 a no cure for cancer when he said, like, you know, you just go through this whole phase of, like, you know, doing all these bad things and being terrible and doing drugs, and then you rehabilitate yourself, and then everyone loves you again. But the thing is, with with a guy like Justin Bieber, you could say that, but, like, he grew up and he was so young by the time he was, like, you know, what, 14, 15? He's, like, hyper-wealthy. He's in front of everybody. Everyone's paying attention. Miley Cyrus, another example. And, you know, Miley Cyrus is a fantastic musician. Miley Cyrus is a great person. But these people had to have like almost meltdowns because there was so much money, so many people whispering in their ears. And like, what the hell do you do when you're literally living in La La Land? I mean, you hear stories about Prince. Yeah, she seems to have come out on the other side. (laughs) And um, yeah, and Justin Bieber, he's kind of become this mentor for Billie Eilish, which I thought was really cool. I saw him, I did see a clip of him interviewed about her and just said, you know, I'm looking after her. Like, I do not want what happened to me to happen to her. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool, yeah. and and again, this is not not something any of us will, <laughs> will experience. But just even just a little bit of it that you know we deal with um, playing you know large clubs or small theaters, and when you start to get get attention, um, yeah, I mean I, I've seen that completely break break people down, and there is no instruction manual, and um, yeah, it's it can be it can be very it can, it can be very strange. It, it took took some time to it took me a, def, a few years, I think, to sort of get used to it and kind of get some sure. perspective. Took my entire twenties, dude. You're like eighteen. You're like a few years. By the time I was twenty one, I was well adjusted. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. I was yeah. on to the Dorian mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's obviously that's something that I think all our viewers and listeners, you know. Uh, it's it's like a peek behind the curtain of of they try to you know try to picture yourself at that age and doing some of the cool stuff that you're doing and just the, the stuff you don't think about that there are there is other sides of that business as you know the band continued and grew and you know you mentioned you guys are now touring so you're getting tighter you're doing all these things can you talk a little bit about how that trajectory went yeah I, it was an interesting um trajectory like we never really had a big break mm-hmm yeah, we sort of we got the break of having a record label interested in, in us, but it wasn't some you know massive record deal. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we we didn't we weren't like groomed <laughs> by anyone. It was sort of we were we pretty much were yeah you know, the band we were in the clubs we were allowed to sort of be that band on on record and. You know, and tour with, um, at you know, uh, Anthrax for the first year. Then our first tour in Europe. The next year, uh, for the second album was with Megadeth. Um, headlining on the third tour, headlining large theaters, and then finally, like supporting classic acts. We supported Judas Priest in the early '90s. Uh, we supported Iron Maiden. That was that was a big thrill. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was this sort of, um, I don't know, disillusion in a way because, yeah, we're we're playing with Judas Priest, but we're opening, right. and yeah, you know, a large part of that crowd is not there to see us. And is that um, hard in metal, like being with bands being so divisive, like you know, because I remember going and seeing like you know Ozzy, and no one fucking cares who's on before right. Ozzy. You know, or you go right. see Metallica a lot. I mean, obviously doing doing the big four was like, you know, an example of like people caring. But most of the time, if you're some new band and they throw days of the new on before Metallica, it's like good luck, dude. Or before Slayer, right. like extra good luck. Like, did you feel like you guys were ever able to overcome that? Or there was an audience that started off. And it was going to turn into an Axl Rose meltdown. And then it turned into like everyone loving you guys. Yeah. Well, it depends. Like we did, we did do a tour with Slayer. For seasons in the abyss, I think that was '91, and that was more our crap. But like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, you're you're dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of folks that, that are sort of 
next generation, like older generation. Yeah. And they don't really get this fast stuff. So <laughs> mm-hmm. playing to, you know, kind of half filled arenas, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a wake up call. It wasn't the dream that I thought it would be. And then I was also really growing as a musician. So I, I started my whole um, jazz instrumental side of things around that time. And I'd been playing for a number of years, like on the side, studying jazz guitar. Because I, I figured I, I don't want to stop developing just because I'm sort of, you know, I have this career playing thrash metal. But mm-hmm. I love Miles Davis and I love John Scofield. Like I'm connecting to all this other music. So I would study with um great jazz musicians when i wasn't on the road and then eventually i got um i got a gig playing instrumental music my first gig outside of metal and that was a great bass player named Stu ham who had been the bass player for my former teacher joe santriani yeah he was also bassist for steve Vai, and um kind of from that world but his own music is different he's got some kind of instrumental rock shred stuff, but he has others that other songs that are much more sort of um, jazz rock. He's got Alan Holdsworth guesting on one track. He's got uh, Eric Johnson guesting on another. And suddenly I get his gig. Uh, Testament take, like take, decides to take a year off. And yeah, this was also amazing timing. And um, during that time, I've, uh, yeah, Stu Ham hires me to do this. I'm, I and I this requires like learning Holdsworth and Eric Johnson. You know, this really advanced guitar stuff that so it really kind of um, put. I think it really helped me develop my guitar skills. Like it really made me. You know, it was a were you, great were you ever nervous? Like when they said when Stu Ham sat you down and said, "Hey, man, there's this guy Alan Holdsworth. I mean, rest in peace." But there was this guy. Alan Holdsworth, who was, if, if I already if, knew, I already knew about Alan. Holdsworth. Well, I mean, I, just, I know uh, you do, but the listeners and the people, right. they may not know the level of insanity that is. So for people that don't know, if you've seen American Ninja Warrior, the Americans that make it to Mount Midoriyama, that's Alan Holdsworth on the guitar. Right. Is that fair? Right. And he, yeah. And he was also, he was Eddie Van Halen's big, biggest influence. I mean, he's, that's and rightfully most, so. Yeah. Cause he's that most level. notable influence. Yeah, um, in my in fact, in my, I did an episode of my podcast. I did a tribute to Eddie. May he rest in peace. And it's so hard to find anything in Eddie's playing that sounds like lifted from anybody else. Maybe a riff mm-hmm. here and there. You could say, "Oh, okay," and you know, "And the cradle will rock." You could compare that to, uh, you know, Skinnerd. Saturday Night Special. Um, you could compare like the Van Halen he did, boogie. He did copy himself. He took the end of Jump and made that <laughs> top of the uh, 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 was it top of the world or whatever. Um, standing on top of the world uh, from 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 lawful carnal knowledge. So he used it with both the Van Hagar and the David Lee Roth era, and just said, "Fuck it, I love that riff yeah. so much. I'm going to make it a new song." And it charted. Well, he he was very creative. He would do stuff like that often, and like the Van Halen boogie woogie stuff. From like I'm the one hot for teacher, you can trace that back to Lagrange, Azizi Top, just like hyped up for. Mm. So you could find, you know, maybe what inspired the Van Halen, but it, it's so hard to find like a lick that yeah. sounds like anything else. And I found one, <laughs> and it's in um, of all solos, um, "Beat It" by Michael Jackson. He does a lick, and if you play it right next to a Jean Luc Ponty track called enigmatic ocean that has alan holdsworth on guitar it's okay there that's the same lick you're like wow. guitar so, shazam that's amazing. that's what you are like you literally <laughs> yeah. like, i know it's that so like the that the level of, of insanity to know that alex skolnick yeah. i'll just just to finish that thought i was already listening to alan holdsworth because eddie van halen would talk about him but it never occurred to me to learn his stuff because it was so far out but suddenly i'm playing with Stu. And he, there's a song that Holdsworth played on, and he didn't want me to copy the the solo exact. Thank, thank goodness. 
but Luck. I really had to dive into that. It really sort of took things next level. And um, I think I came off of that or, and I was just, you know, I, I was all about Holdsworth. I was all about um, Schofield, Matheny. Like I was really, that side was really developing. And then the next year, 92, I would kind of go off on my own and sort of explore that and later come back, which is a whole other story. <laughs> that was really where that side of things began. And we hope our Very listeners cool. will come back. But before yeah, we'll we, we end, two. we end yeah. this. Cool. Alex, can you tell us uh, where everyone can hear your podcast and where we can find out all the stuff and hear the Alex Golden Trio and get Testament swag and anything else you want to drop? And the book and your book, the book that yes. I'm reading. Yes, I'm so glad you read that. So so cool. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So, if all my my main handles online for Instagram and Twitter, it's just at Alex Golnick. I reserved my name before anybody else grabbed it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Which often happens. Um, I bet. (laughs) Yeah. Making the real alexgolnick.com right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, no. So I have that, but that's my YouTube. (laughs) Ah. And that's kind of my fault because I I did a channel for just for my trio on YouTube and called that Alex Golnick. Ah. But Mm. so my. All my non-trio stuff is under uh, the real Alex Skolnick on YouTube and uh, Facebook. There's Alex Skolnick fan page, but it's it's all linked to oh, and on the web, uh, alexskolnick.com and alexskolnick.net. If you just look at at Alex Skolnick, like my Instagram links to everything. Yeah. I think and everyone's Alexas are going off yeah. right now and, and you're just yeah. coming up. In <laughs> fact, I actually had an old guy call me the other day and said, am I listening to Benny Goodman? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I asked Alexa to, to put on Benny Goodman and he actually called my cell phone from Alexa. That's a true oh, that's story. Funny. And on that note, you've been 2020. Please subscribe and listen to Alex Skolnick. And what, can you tell us yeah. the name of your podcast so everyone can listen? Oh to yeah, so my there. podcast is called Moods and Modes with Alex Skolnick. <laughs> that's awesome. And it's... Um, Love that. It's on the Osiris Media Network. They have O'Teal Burbridge from Dead and Company. They have Eric Krasnow from Full Live. They have a lot of, um, you, I think you mentioned Fish earlier. They have Trans- a lot of Stasio, Fish podcasts. Yeah. So it's mm. kind of more on the jam band side of things, but they're just great musicians, great content. And um, it, it's a really cool uh, network to be a part of. And you can find moods and modes on all your podcast apps apple Podcasts, uh spotify and uh, it it lives on alexholnick.net subscribe cool. thank you as always for checking out this episode of 2020 please visit 2020-d.com like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes this week's throwback clip is from episode number 57 featuring doc coil of bad wolves check it out yeah but if you're in a band that made a name and then that band breaks up, there's a lot of people who kind of want to write you off. as like, oh, you were this thing mm-hmm. and you're this other thing. And I, but I never let that get to me. Like I never was like, oh, just cause that person doesn't believe I can do blank. I just didn't think that way. I always felt like, well, I'm here, I'm now. Like that was then, this is now. So it's all about, if, and I don't care. I was never like too good to like do any gig or play any venue. Like I was like, to me, being a musician is just a very blue collar thing. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.